to give you a sense of the theme of what we're addressing, what I've found, and I've talked about this at times before, um, in my uh, roughly 20 years of pastoral ministry, I have found that one of the most slippery ideas, one of the most challenging concepts in all of Christianity is one of our most, if not most, cherished identity. Right? And that slippery word, that concept that's so difficult, is this word, grace. Right? Grace is a word that I find more and more people love and they fear. Right? We love it because we go, that's right, we're saved by grace. It's all the work of Christ. It's not what I do. He liberates me to heaven. I love grace. But then at the same time, people can fear grace because they go, oh, but sometimes grace is abused. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't matter what I do. It's just my free ticket out of hell. It has nothing to do necessarily with my complete delight in heaven. And so people get a little nervous about grace. And, and because of that, we want to kind of add to the construction of grace and, 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 and kind of highlight it in certain ways to insulate our fears. And so that's where I think grace is a little slippery. In fact, in some ways, as I've thought about it more, I think grace is a little bit like a theory. And when I say theory, I don't mean like some of the ways we use that word, which is a hypothesis. I don't mean like a grace hypothesis. I mean like a theory, like music theory or atomic theory. In other words, when you talk about that, you're not talking about something that you're guessing on. You're talking about something very concrete that all comes together for a big idea. Music theory is all the different pieces pulled into one where we go, oh, okay, we see how it interacts. We see how it plays. Here's the challenge about theory. People will look at that, a theory like that, and this is what they say. Well, that's great in theory. But it's not always great in practice. And I think in that same way, when it comes to grace, sometimes we look and we, we see certain things in the Bible, certain evangelical teachings, and we say, that's great in theory. I got it. It's all of Jesus. It's not of me. He went to the cross and made me righteous and I contribute nothing to that. And I am saved, sanctified and glorified purely in the work of Jesus. In theory, that is awesome. But in practice, in practice, I struggle with some of that. In practice, I struggle to, to, to figure out how is it that Jesus does it all, but I have some things to do. And, and then if people get too laxed in that, they may think they do nothing. And so we've got to tell them they have to do something because, again, that's much more practical. So we love the theory of grace often. We struggle. We even fear some of the practice of grace. So we struggle then to move, to be motivated, to make much of grace. And so we start to inadvertently turn to law. We turn to law. We go, oh, we need more law in the good Christian life. We need more law to correct. We need more law to curb. We need more law to control. We need more law to contextualize the Christian life. You're not going to really understand how to live as a Christian unless you really understand the Bible law. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about stuff outside of this book. I'm saying, we start to say, you need to know the law of this book if you're really going to live the good Christian life. And so we, we, we start to, to ebb more and more toward cultivating law. Biblical law is what we do. The challenge, I find, 
And I don't pretend to have it all solved. I really don't. But the challenge I find is that ultimately at the core of that thought, just as an idea, I'm not talking about the emotional responses we have to it, but as a theological idea, that is actually kind of a heresy that says we're saved by grace, but we're grown by law. We're redeemed under the sole proprietorship of the grace of God. But to really understand the implication of that salvation, we must bind ourselves to law. That is errant. That is flawed as a thought, as a theological idea. But boy, that creates tension, doesn't it? Right? I mean, already you're like, I'm writing email in my head. Right? We'll see if we can unpack this a little bit, this idea of tension. And that's Galatians chapter 2. Now, let's go ahead and bring up this first slide. This is the scene of Galatians chapter 2. It's so awesome. All right? You have a full-on fight in Galatians 2. And you have a fight among very unlikely characters. The Apostle Peter, the papal bull, right? Versus Paul, the sermonator. That's, That's the fight. Right? And, and Peter's gotten himself into some stuff where he's forgotten some of the identity and ideology and the essence of Christ and the gospel. And Paul is stepping in to start correcting that toward Peter. I wish I could be there. I mean, everybody would be like, back up and be quiet. This is going to be awesome. Right? I mean, these are two church war horses going at it. So, in Galatians chapter 2, Starting in verse 11, it says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him publicly. Oh, man, isn't that... It's like you go to a Bible study, you know? Peter's already there. Paul walks in. Yeah, I got to talk to you. You ever been to a Bible study where somebody just marches in and says, We got to talk. Well, can we do it private? No, I got to do it publicly. Right? And that's what he does. He says, I had to do it publicly. Right? speaking strongly against what he was doing, for it was very wrong. When I said some of this idea is a heresy, is broken, I'm not saying it because it's my opinion. Paul's making this indictment. He says it's wrong. It's not just flawed. It's wrong. He's confronting publicly. That's a big deal. Paul is very pro. Hey, go to your brother first if there's a problem. This is so sinister. He says, I got to do a public thing. So he says it's very wrong. So when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who don't, do not bother with circumcision. But afterward, when some of the Jewish friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he was afraid of what the legalists would say. Right? So people are big. God is small. Right? So then the other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was influenced to join them with their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel... Right? So notice what he's saying here. I know it's not on the screen. Hopefully you have a Bible in front of you. But, but he's saying the problem is not just, oh, it's a gray area we disagree on. He says what they were doing did not follow the truth of the gospel. That's what's wrong. Right? He says, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you a Jew by birth have discarded the Jewish laws and living like a Gentile, why are you trying to make these Gentiles obey the Jewish law you abandoned? He's like, so do you see what you're doing, Peter? 
Do you see the trajectory you're on? You've let go of something, but you want to apply it to somebody else now. You've realized that we're saved under a certain standard. We even grow under a certain standard, but you want to resurrect the old standard and apply it to new people. See, this is where he's going with the argument, all right? And so you get the gist of this. I don't even know what a gist is, by the way, but you get it, all right? You get the gist So here's where Paul goes in this mind-blowing way. I think it's one of the hardest passages in the Bible, yet one of the most beautiful when you understand it. He starts in verse 15. He says, we ourselves, after he said, hey, why have you done all this? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I'm going to stop right there. I mean, this is his affirmation. So based on what he's seen, he says, you know what, Peter? At some level, I, I agree with you. I totally agree. We are Jews that uphold the law. They're just Gentile sinners. I mean, to me, this is hilarious. Look at this bug attacking me up here right now, too. It's amazing. All right. Satan bug is what it is. All right, because we're preaching the Bible. All right. So, right? So he says, we're, we're Jews. We, we do the law. We do the law. We take the Bible. We take that Old Testament and we do that. That's true. It's what we're known for. God revealed the covenant, the promise, the scripture to us. That's what we do. We're not like those Gentile sinners. We're not a bunch of those dirty, uncircumcised, bacon eaten. We're not that. He says, I agree. That is the difference between us. Right? When we were born, we were born in a family where dad was an elder in the church and mom was a deacon. And when you were born, you were actually born on the church altar. You came out with an Awana bandana. You filled up your little crown of Awana by the time you were three. Yeah, that's us. Sure. Those Gentile sinners, their dads were pimps and their moms were doing tricks. And they were born in the back of a van with shag carpet. I agree. By three, they had crack pipes and glocks for protection. Yes. I agree. And as time went on, the difference between us was obvious, right? We grew up and we were good and we were wise and we were obedient and biblical and refined and moral and of good character. And they were not. They grew up bad, foolish, and disobedient, unbiblical, cursed, perverse, and of poor character. He says, but too bad a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Christ Jesus, but through faith in Christ Jesus, right? So he says, that's a great argument. That's a stellar argument. They are bad. We are good. Too bad God doesn't weigh that. Because that would clean this whole thing up. But God doesn't weigh it based on how good or how bad how well we keep the law, or how poorly we keep the law. He says, we've already embraced that, Peter. We know this truth. I don't have to convince you of this. You've been preaching it from day one. You were the founding apostle. The church was started under your preaching ministry. This is years later. Peter knows this. Paul knows. Peter knows this. But how quickly we want to drift to law. And measure things at this standard, right? That's the dilemma Paul knows it. And, and, and I love this, even when he says, yet we know. Yet we know. I think this is deeply personal. I think this is a part of the conversation. Come on, Peter. We know this isn't true. In fact, Peter, here's why we even know it's not true. Because we who keep the law don't keep the law. 
let's be really clear, Peter. Uh, let's go back to your history. Oh, yeah, I remember you denied him. That's right. The Lord that you swore you would not deny. The Lord you actually gave oath that you would be bound to even in death. You ditched that guy in front of a little girl at a campfire. Yeah, so we know we don't keep the law. And Peter could say, hey, or Paul could say, you know, I, I know I don't keep the law. I don't keep the law because, you know what, I was a persecutor. I was filled with so much wrath and so much vengeance in the name of God, I really overlooked what the real law of God says. He says, so Peter, if there's anybody that should understand the nature of grace, that we are justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, it's you and I. We might like to justify ourselves by the works of the law, but the works of the law cannot justify and that's one of those dangers. This is why we sometimes love law. We love law because it justifies us. I'm better than them because I do right things and they do wrong things. I'm, I'm, I'm better. Right? And so I understand why we lean to this. I do. Paul does also, so he continues. He says, so we, all right, the same people that know, we're not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. It's not just that they won't be justified, but here's where you go a step deeper. We're going to see you can't be justified by the works of the law. You just can't. If you grab this book and you say, all right, I'm going I'm to go through, I'm going to catalog all 613 commandments of the Old Testament. Then I'm going to look at the literally thousands of other legal implications related to those 613 laws. And from that you say, and I'm going to do it all. And if I do it all, I can be justified by the works of the law because I fulfilled everything to the jot and tittle, right? If I do all of that, I can be justified. No, you won't. You won't because you can't. And not simply because you can't do the law, but there's a deeper reason. The law's not designed for you to do it. It's a tool, but we corrupt the tool. It's like using a butter knife as a screwdriver, right? You can do it, but it doesn't really do it. And sometimes we want to take the law and say, oh, the law is my way to God. And Paul's going to say the law was never built to be your way to God. In fact, in Romans, the first thing you see is that the law, its design is to coax sin. Coax it out, kind of bring it to the surface in a strange sort of way. Paul says this in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 5. It says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, right, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I mean, I love this. I love this because it's so absolutely practical if you think about it. It is the, uh, you come by, you see a sign on a bench and it says, wet paint, don't touch. So your first inclination, is it tacky, Right? Like, you want to know. You know, I grew up in Arizona. I've told this before. You go to the Grand Canyon, do not throw rocks. Yeah, give that to a bus of junior hires, right? 
You go on a field trip to the Grand Canyon, you've got 80 little kids chucking rocks because the sign says don't. Right? They would do better to say, throw all the rocks you want. Nobody would throw a rock, right? You know, be like, oh, whatever, permission. I don't know what to do with that. All right, so, all right, don't eat your dinner, kids, and they'll all eat it. It's glorious, all right? So, the law says don't, and then that couples to our nature, which says, well, then I want to transgress whatever God says I'm not supposed to do, right? There's a symbiotic relationship between the law and the sinful nature of man. The, the, the law incites. The law coaxes, right? It, it causes us to realize our rebellion, right? And, and, and then Paul goes a little bit deeper. says, going in verse 8 there a little bit, he says, far apart from the law, sin lies dead, right? Lies dead. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, then sin came alive and I died, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law coaxes your sin, then it condemns you, and it curses you. Now, is the law bad? No, Paul's going to say the law is good. He's going to say in 1 Timothy, the law is good for those who use it lawfully to point out sin. That's the purpose of the law. That's why it exists. That's why we have it. But back in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 2, Paul says something three times. And if you say it three times, you're making a point. And he says three times, we're not justified by the works of the law. We're not justified by the works of the law. We're not justified by the works of the law. He keeps banging away. You're going to keep thinking the law not only can save you, but the law can sanctify you. You're going to think that the law can produce some godly thing in you, but it's not built to do that. That was never its intention to build a godly thing in you. It was designed to drive you someplace. Now, hold on to that, because we're not done. You're going to start saying, oh, great, now he's into lawlessness. Yes, I am, but wait, all right? Um, What you have to understand about law is that the law does not, cannot, will not, never has, never will export what you need. It cannot export in you a standing before God of righteousness. You cannot earn your way, work your way, or develop your way to a place or a stature where God says, Oh, well, now they're righteous. Now they're more complete. Now they've crossed the threshold into pleasing to me. He says the law never could, never has, never will. And I think there's two reasons. One is because, as we all know, we're not going to obey 613 laws. We're just going to blow it. Because here here would be the thing about obedience to the law. Obedience to the law would not simply be compliance to the standard. Obedience to the law would be that your very action, your very attitude, and your very affection tethered to that obedience would be perfectly coupled to the heart of God in that. So it wouldn't just be uh, love your enemy. It would be, you're doing love to your enemy, you're feeling love for your enemy, and your complete attitude is love for your enemy. There's nothing else. You don't have to resist the the, the baggage of being bitter but doing the right thing. No, true obedience to the law would be attitude, action, and affection all aligned. 613 rules, it's never happening. That's one reason why nobody's ever going to attain righteousness through the law. 
But the other part is, like I keep saying, it's copy protected. It can't give you its righteousness. It can't infuse that to you. Right? So you're doing, 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 and the law keeps being righteous, but it can't give you its righteousness as you do it. It's impossible. Because it's not by design. It's just not. Right? This is why Paul then says in Galatians 2.21, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I mean, this is like the death nail to the idea that good people go to heaven. Good people enter the pearly gates because their long list of good accomplishments. This is why Paul says, no, if that was the case, if anybody on the planet, just one person, just one person, could attain a standing of rightness with God by fulfilling the entire Bible, then the death of Christ is a cruel, sick twisted tragedy and god should hang his head in shame because his son said if there's any other way may this cup pass and god said there's no other way if there was another way which is oh if i just do the law if one person could do it there would be a way outside of the cross there's no other way because the law can't make you righteous the law can't make you godly the law can't change your inner person it just can't I know this is a lot of theology, but it's going to make a lot of sense as we trek through what Paul's talking about. Because we have to own the magnitude of the work of the cross. He said, if this isn't the case, then the cross was for no purpose. There are some more in in liberal theology who look at the cross and say, well, the real message of the cross is example of self-sacrifice. The real message of the cross isn't so much uh, this idea of his blood, but more his example. And we're saved by embracing the example of a selfless, good, wise teacher. And Paul would say that was not the purpose of the cross. Those are some dividends, but that's not the purpose. The purpose was substitution. Penal, which means punishment. Substitution, which means somebody's guilty. And atonement, which means God satisfied. And that's what he did for us. Right? That's what Paul knows about the cross. And so he says, man, if there was any other way, any other way to be right with God, and Christ died for no purpose. Now, with this argument, Paul is painting himself into a theological corner. And he knows it. He can sense the skeptic in his generation, hearing this this idea, unpacking this thought. And he knows what they're going to start to say. We may not really see it this way, but he knows what they're going to say. So he gets ahead of it with this kind of rhetorical question. He's a consummate theologian, so he knows something's going to be underway that's going to get him a little bit stuck here because what he's basically advocating is that God's law, when when shined on the light of a human being, uh, almost makes them more sinful. And that was his argument in Romans. Before I knew the law, I was ignorant which is not nearly as sinful as when I'm knowledgeable and I do it anyway. I mean, you know that as parents. If your kid does something foolish that you don't agree with, but you didn't set down that standard, silly if you blow up in the same way as if you set the standard and they transgress it. Right? One is knowledgeable disobedience. The other can be ignorant disobedience. They're both disobedience, but one is more severe than the other. And so that's what Paul's saying. He says, oddly enough, the people that are the most sinful are the people that are most connected to the law. People that are the least sinful are the ones that are ignorant. So the people are going to look at this and say, all right, Paul, so let me get this straight. If I then embrace Jesus's message that the law points out my sin, 
isn't then the repercussion. Jesus is creating a larger batch of sinful people because they're changing their designation from righteous Jews to unrighteous under the law. This is what they're going to accuse him of. So this little statement in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we are found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? When he says that, what he's, what he's addressing again in that rhetorical question is, could Jesus be accused of creating more sinful people because he's retailored the law to point out your sin as opposed to point out your righteousness? You've just taken the Jewish group, which could be finally some righteous people on the planet, and you've said they're the worst of all now because they obey the law but imperfectly? Isn't Jesus now to blame then for more sin? And Paul says, certainly not. This has such force behind it when he says, certainly not. He's saying, damn the idea that you embrace the reality that law points out sin, that somehow Jesus is then, therefore, the guardian of making more sinful people. He says, that's a damnable idea. He says, no, the whole purpose was that through the law I died to the law. See, he's starting to, to defend the purpose of the law here. The law did something in me. It, it, it made me aware. It opened my eyes. It helped me see that I am actually needy. It helped me see the real condition and the real problem and the real solution, right? That's what he's saying about the law. The law is not some sadistic, uh, kind of like spiritual, you know, iron maiden or some torture contraption. That's not it. The law is a drill instructor, though. The law is a drill instructor where you, you start to read through it. You go through the pages, you see the things. And what the law is really trying to do is in your face yell at you, do you see yourself? Do you see who you really are? I know who you think you are. I know who you want to be. I know you usually think you're better than most people and that you're a pretty good person and you're going to go to heaven and there's not going to be a problem. But do you really see that nobody can do the standard? Nobody can handle the magnitude of the request. Do you get it? That's the heart. Don't lose that. It is the most important thing you can know about what the law does. It says, don't you see yourself? And Paul goes, man, I know that day. I remember that moment vividly. I was riding on my way to Damascus. I was breathing threats against the church. I hated the church of Jesus Christ. I was going to annihilate it if I could. And on that road, God hit me and he nailed me to the ground and he convicted me and he showed me in the light of his law who I really am and I died. I died to the law. See, Paul has this personal testimony embedded into the story. There I died. I love that. And I love why he dies. Because it could sound really bleak, like, oh, wait, great. So none of us can do the law. The law is just this giant yelling in your face, you're unworthy. Yes, that's exactly what the law does. You can never make the gospel cool for everybody. Anybody says, I just want more self-esteem, then don't look at the law. The law says, oh, man, you don't need self-esteem. You don't need self-image. You need a restored image. But it's not more self-image. And so Paul says, I died to the law. Why? Verse 19b. So that I might live to God. I died to the law. So that for the first time in my life, I could live to God. Now we're starting to get someplace. 
right? Like before, he thought he was. He thought doing all those laws, obeying all those commands, having all those statutes, having all those standards, making sure he killed something at every interval that he needed to, and taking every Saturday off as Sabbath, and uh, having this unique passion, so much so that he would kill other people in the name of God. He thought that was living to God. No, it wasn't. It was bondage to the law. He says, and I died to the law that day on the way to Damascus, that I might live to God. See, a highlight here for me is that we need to understand that doing what the Bible morally commands isn't the same as living to God. Again, Paul's law wasn't extra-biblical, all of it. A, a lot of, and what he's writing about here is totally the Old Testament. He's talking about the Bible law. Again, not human legalistic law. He's talking about, you know, the Bible law. He says, that's what I died to. He says, well, I realize that living to God isn't the same as being biblically obedient. God is interested in something more. In fact, I, I would liken this to, like, marriage vows. All right? There's going to be some in this room, that say, I keep my vows. And if quizzed the standard of keeping their vows, they would say, because no matter what, I won't get a divorce, and no matter what, I won't cheat. Congratulations, you're keeping a very small fraction of your vows. Right? But sometimes that's the standard. If I make it to the end, and I didn't cheat, and I didn't divorce, I kept my vows. But fulfilling your vows, you know what fulfilling your vows are? Go back to your vows. I promise to love, honor, cherish, for better, for worse, richer, or poor, sickness, or in health. I mean, these are different. This is where I, I'm promising that day I'm going to dote on you no matter what. I'm going to serve you even if you're using me. I'm going to serve you because my pledge is not if you do this, I will do this. I'm just making a pledge. So keeping vows is basically I don't go off the rails, but to really fulfill the vows is to do everything that they entail with great joy. See, I, I, I highlight this because that's what Paul's getting at. He's like, before I was like keeping my vows. But now it's like fulfilling my vows. Before it was about the doing of law to satisfy God. Now I'm dead to all of that. And for the first time I can live to God. I can really live to him. It's like right here, Paul is stepping out of himself. Like they're on the Damascus Road, laying in the dust. He steps out of himself. And, and he realizes finally, you know what? That he's dead. He's finally truly dead to making much of his character and much of his morality and much of his ethics and much of his legal standing. He's dead to pleasing men, which by the way, here's the secret, no men are ever pleased anyway. Right? They'll never be pleased. You can try to please them all you want. They're never pleased. In fact, the more you try to please them, the more that they will be disappointed in you. But Paul was also dead to the need to try to please God with tools that God says, those would never please me anyway. Paul says, I died that I might live to God. And then he makes what I would say is probably one of the most pivotal, pivotal beautiful, incredible Worthy of memorization, memorization statements in the Bible. Verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? So I was dead to the law. So I might live to God. How? I've been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. You've got to understand, when Paul writes this, he's not writing it purely as a theologian. He's writing it as somebody who's felt it and tasted it and senses it and knows it. I mean, this is boldly true from his soul and his heart. I mean, imagine a guy that's like, I killed his people and he loved me. I hated him. I was breathing hatred all the time and he gave himself for me. It boggles Paul's mind. Don't read this. It's just a theological thing. I see this as a guy, as he writes this to the Galatians, he writes it with weeping. And awe. Break this whole thing down. I have been crucified with Christ. When you think about the cross, when you see crosses around town or in here, wherever else, when you see a cross, it's real simple. There's four things on that cross. First thing, Jesus is on that cross. Second thing, there is a placard. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Second thing. The third thing is the... the penalty, if you will, the, the guilt of your sin. But the fourth is you. You're on the cross in Jesus. That's what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. That's some mind-bending stuff that only Doctor Who could sort out, man. Right? Like, well, how was I in Christ on the cross if I lived now and he was back then and woohoo, he's God, he can do what he wants, right? But, own, I, I have been crucified with Christ. What is the result? You're dead. You are the walking dead. Zombies for Jesus is what you are. Right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This statement, no longer I, but Christ in me. In one sense, it's a truth. Just own it. Right? Just own it. It's a truth. In another sense, it's a pursuit. It's true that He lives in you. And your calling is to connect with the One that lives in you. Because you are bonded to Him. You are bonded through the Gospel. Crucified with Christ. No longer it is you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. But there's tension, right? Because he says, this life I now live in the flesh. It's kind of like schizo Paul. It's no longer I, but Christ, but me. Right? This is one of the worst things about New Testament Christianity. It is like trying to carry a bucket of steam. Right? How do you gather it? How do you keep it? You know? It's like, you're always going to be like, no, no, Matt, I need, I, need, I need seven steps. I need ten principles. I need twelve workshops. I need whatever. That's what's so hard. You know, I kind of look at this and go, man, this is so awesome. I don't know what it means, but it's awesome. Uh, But I think that's the tension that God desires. So Paul says, this life I now live in the flesh, I know is weak. I know is challenged. I know is going to be tempted. I know it's going to be all those things. But he also knows that it is not going to have its backbone stiffened by going back and keeping the code of the biblical law. He knows that. That's why he says, this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Notice the whole argument has been, uh, 
not by the works of the law, but by faith. Not by works, by faith. Not by the law, by faith. So what Paul knows is not only am I saved not by works, but by faith, but he also knows that as he continues in Christ, he doesn't grow by works, he grows by faith. Right? There's something in there that is going to cause way greater growth than if Paul says, all right, I'm just going to go ahead and bite down and try to be a more legal-oriented Christian. He knows that's not going to be the case. So he says, I don't live in the flesh by law, really, but I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith here is a lot of different things. It's objective, which is I believe that. I believe the cross is sufficient. It's subjective. I believe in, right, what Jesus is going to do through me. It's a pursuit. It's a hope. All of those things. So he's like, you know, I'm banking on faith in the Son of God to grow me, shape me, deploy me, use me, grip me. And I love this because he's putting it not in a creed, not in a canon, but in a person, right? Christ is the center. I love the Bible. I love the Bible. I mean, if you sit down with me long enough, you're going to find out that, man, I love the Bible. But you know what I'm going to tell you right now? Your Bible is a means to a deeper end. And there are plenty of people that know Bibles really, really well and don't know God at all. Right? The Bible takes us to who God is so that we might dwell with Him. Right? Because He's a personal God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Personal God. Paul knows this. So he creates the tension. Right? So I look at this thing, I mean, this is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing because ultimately what Paul advocates in the gospel is lawlessness. Right? If you say, who would Jesus vote for? You ready? A libertarian. That's what Jesus would vote for. Um, right? He's the ultimate libertarian. Right? He's like, I came to die under the law to save you from the law so you could live lawless. But lawless is not the same as godless. In fact, lawless is to be to Paul living unto God, greater godliness. See, we hear lawless and we go, oh, rampage, crazy, L.A. riots, that's what we think. Right, Lisa, we live in a very fallen world that Jesus has to redeem. And when Jesus redeems it, he blows our mind by saying the law points out your frailty, your fallenness, your brokenness, and then I make you lawless to live unto God. But then doing this in the gospel is not always going to be easy. There are going to be challenges. There are going to be hardships. Romans chapter 7, Paul writes his own testimony again about this. I love this. He says, so the trouble is not with the law. It's spiritual. It's good. Again, I keep saying this. Don't start thinking, Matt says the law is bad. No, Matt says the law is awesome, provided the law is used right. The law is godly, provided it's used right. Paul knows this too. He says that. But he says, the trouble is with me. He says, I'm all too human. Now, understand in Romans chapter 7 here, he's given a personal testimony about his Christian life as he writes it. All right, this is an insight to Paul's little personal life. He says, the trouble's with me. I'm all too human. I am still a slave of sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, but if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is no good. I still can acknowledge my, my stupidity. So he says, I'm not the one doing the wrong. It's the sin that lives in me. That's the struggle. He says, I know that nothing good in me that is in my sinful nature is there. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. Do you understand this? Man, this is often my prayer. I know what you want in me, God. I know how you want me to treat people. Oh, you want me to love enemies, endure with people that are difficult. I know how you want me to love my wife and love my kids and have this faithful attitude. I know, but I don't do it. I get Paul so much. He says, I don't do what I want to do. I know it's wrong. I do it anyway. 
right? He says, I am not really the one doing it, though. It's that sin. He goes, but I have discovered, verse 22 or 21, this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there's this other power within me that is a war within my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am! Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Verse 25, thank God. Thank God, he says, the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you notice he doesn't say... Thank God I have the strength, though, in Christ to do the law. No, he just goes straight to Christ. Straight to Christ. How do I deal with my inconsistency, my judgmental spirit, my attitude, my temptation? How do I deal with it? Thank God for Jesus. Right? And I know this seems so indescript. Right? I'm just trying to paint a really big target whatever your problem is point your gun and fire toward jesus you'll hit the right target that's what paul sees in his own life so he says i just need christ for that that's the answer he's just looking at this going how do i deal with my things i need to be desperate for jesus i need to seek jesus i need to be hungry for jesus i need to want jesus i need my prayer every day to be jesus just reveal you in me more see often we turn to a lot of other stuff as opposed to that desperate prayer and yet paul knows it's got to be jesus christ our lord he says that's the answer notice that thank god the answer is singular one answer not five, ten, twenty. One answer. He says, I just need Christ. Christ. Because what Christ wants is holiness. Not just goodness. Not just character. Not just morality. We love those things. Especially as Christians. We love character. We love morality. We make much of it. We make, make much of ethics. Not taking away from that. In fact, those things should flow from a true life in Jesus. But what is meant by those things is much deeper than just obeying the rules. This is why when you look at Galatians 5... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's not good enough. Honestly, it's just not good enough for us to think, you know what, if I play by the rules, I'm pleasing God. Now, I have to play by the rules with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I mean, you get, that's what he's going for, which, again, I can't do enough myself. I need to be desperate for God, pleading to God. And so Paul says, I just need Christ. Not like, I need Christ, like I need to do this to get by. He's like, I need him. I'm empty without him. I am completely undone for him. That's what it is. This is why Paul says things like in Galatians chapter 5, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? So this is what he's saying after this whole dialogue on law. And people will say, oh, but what if you, or, you know, if, you, if you're saying it's lawless, they're going to be sinful. He says, no, no, I tell you, walk by the Spirit. You're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other and keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul wants us to stay dead to the law. Not just you were dead to the law to get saved. He wants you to stay dead to that law. Don't resurrect it. Don't bring it back. He says, if anything, you want to know the answer to living a godly life? This goes back to the study we did here last year. A lot of people read, not a fan, which means you want to be a follower. And then at the end, everybody said, he didn't tell me what to go do. And I said, right, because what he said is go follow. Well, where's the checklist for that? Ain't one. <laughs> you know, not in the true sense. 
In the truest sense of you, if I just got to do these five things, that makes me a follower now? Now, what makes a follower a follower is one who follows. What makes somebody one who walks in the Spirit is they walk in the Spirit. Now, again, I will say, the Bible then points in all the ways you can walk in the Spirit and highlights the character of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the standard of God. He writes on you in your heart His truth through the Word, so you do do that. But the motive is to connect with God. That's the heart. That's the truth. That's the life of the saved. Now, here is the dilemma right now. Some right now are saying, ready? Matt, that is awesome. In theory. Right? It's awesome in theory. But Matt, people do abuse grace. Matt, people do need to know that there are rules. Matt, don't you realize if people live lawless, they will live restless and frankly brainless unless you make sure, you know, you... You start giving them the... I mean, yeah, I agree. You're saved by grace. You're saved by faith in the Son of God. But really, to grow, you come through that door of the church that says wide open, nothing you do. But we've got to slam that thing shut and make sure they know there's some things they need to do. How do you answer that? I'll let Paul answer in Galatians chapter 3. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. After having just made this argument, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, he says, having begun by the Spirit, you are now going to be perfected by the flesh. Are you so foolish to think that you are saved by the grace of God to have life in God, for God, to God, only through His work, but then you think the way you're going to refine that is you build up all the login? Literally, he says to them, that's stupid talk. It's stupid talk. It's foolhardy to think that. Because again, it's not the system that God set up. The system God set up is, you know what, I take you from death to life, and in that life, I make you desperate for me, I make you hunger for me, I make you thirst for me, and that's the way you're going to grow. And when you're not hungering, and you're not thirsting, and you're not desiring, you're going to go one of two directions. You're going to blow out, or you're going to gather up a bunch of laws to make yourself feel better, but neither are going to work. Neither will work. It's foolhardy to think that you will be perfected by the flesh. And when I look at this, I, I, having, like I said, been in the church a long time, I know that Christians, you know, we, we don't love the Hebrew law. We don't. Because we want crab cakes and bacon wrapped pork bites and you know, all this. So we're like, I, I, don't, I don't want the Jewish law. But you know what we love in the church is Christian law. We do. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, because Christian law is concrete. It can be cataloged. It can be comforting, it can be confronting, it can be convenient, it can be clean, and best of all, it is conquerable. So if I write out my manual, depends on how long it is, of all the Christian laws that Christian people do, uh, I can get to the bottom of that list eventually. I can, I can do it all, check it all in. I'm a good Christian. Right? That, that's the, the, the tendency or the danger But there's nothing more dangerous in Paul's mind, and I agree with Paul, there's nothing more dangerous than that idea of a bunch of Bible-believing, highly obedient deists where God isn't alive, real, and active 
a desperate cry of their heart. It's just, this is what good Christian people do. I go to church, I pay my tithe, I serve in children's ministry, I do some stuff, but we are not desperate for our God and our soul. Right? Because that's just gears. That's just grease the gears all the time. But there's nothing dynamic about that at all. That's the great danger. It, It creates just kind of average... Right? Which, why do you think that would be such a big deal? Um, in my mind, I go, the reason that's a serious issue is because God says, I am the all-consuming Lord of glory, rules heaven, rules earth. I came in great power, invaded your life, gripped you by my grace, and then we go, business as usual, under the banner of Christian. We're not uniquely different. I mean, my prayer continues to be, uh, in, in my life and for the life of Redemption Church, this prayer, this idea that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, when people come in, they will say, God is obviously and certainly in this place. Because we would be a people that are absolutely desperate for God, not just good at rules, not just good at theology, not just good at the Bible, but we are desperate yearners for God. God, please write your life in my soul kind of stuff. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the New Testament. Remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. And people should be able to see that. Not just as a marquee or a banner or an icon or a concept or a doctrine or a creed, but it's Christ alive. Because this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right? That's the heart. I think about this from Paul. Philippians chapter 3. You see where he's bringing up the same concern in another context, another church. He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do so to safeguard your faith. He says, watch out for those dogs. He has no problem calling people names. You know, I get in trouble for it. Paul was awesome at it, all right? Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Right? Now, we don't say you have to be circumcised to be saved, but you know what we do sometimes? We do say, well, these are the hallmarks of what a real Christian is, and if you don't really do that, you're probably not really a Christian. We have our own little set of things. So he says, watch out for that. He says, those of us who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us, not what we do. We rely 100% on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in our human effort. My best day, my worst day, I shouldn't have a lot of confidence in my best day because even my best day is a bad day when compared against the perfections of God. I only stand in Christ, right? Paul says, though, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could, indeed. If others have a reason for confidence in their efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I was a pure-blood citizen of Israel, member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. So I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous, I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, that would have been awesome if the law could give him righteousness, right? He was righteous in relationship to the law, but he could get no righteousness from the law, which means his internals weren't changed. So Paul says, man, I, I, I was rocking. I was rocking. This is in verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless 
because of what Christ has done for me. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else. I counted as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. What is the secret to a dynamic, living, active, pulsating Christian life? One with Christ, to know Christ, to make that the daily prayer, right? Man, he says, oh, I no longer count my own righteousness is through obeying the law. He says, I'm not righteous by obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous, right? How do we grow as Christians? I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul is just undone for desire for Christ. Notice that this is his theme. I just want to know him. Just want to walk with him. Just want to be filled with him. Just want to seek him. Just need him. That's what he means. Verse 12, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Why did Jesus possess Paul? To make Paul like Jesus, that's why. Why did Jesus possess you when he first laid hold of your life? Why did he possess you? So that you would look like him. Right? So you would look like him. And how are you going to most look like him? You seek him. You long for him. You thirst for him. You're desperate for him. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Giving us one goal. Forgetting the past and the law. Looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. This is why I love the book of Hebrews then, right? Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this how? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's it. And so for 2013... What is that great, grand, singular goal that I want to challenge all of us to? It's that we seek. It's that we really powerfully, potently seek. In fact, we're calling this Seek 13. Again, we try to do something every year where people are challenged to something. And man, this has really been my heart because I'm seeing in my own life, as I've shifted gears over the last year and got out of a lot of the crazy busy, I've been able to kind of stop and dwell more with God. And I'm realizing, man, I was going on a lot of dead battery stuff and how robbed I was and God was, right? And so now it's like, no, no, no. This is the key to a healthy, vibrant, personal life, home life, church life, is that you wake up in the morning saying, Holy Spirit, what do you want to teach me? Father God, what do you want to show me? Jesus, live in me, right? Driving in the car to work, that's your prayer. At lunch, that's your prayer. Before you go to bed, that's your prayer. With your family, that's your prayer. You pray that for your wife. You pray that for your kids. You pray that for your husband. You pray that for your friends. You pray that for your church. Seek, seek, seek. And God promises, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. Sometimes you go, I don't experience God. And my thing is, we're probably not seeking. Well, I've done that three times this year. Yeah, that's not with all your heart. With all your heart. I say that and I close with this because here's my encouragement. 
the world, it doesn't need more Christian people. It does need God-desperate people. The world doesn't need another convincing argument. What they need to see is people that are so personally convinced by the living God and He's grabbed them so tightly, they say there's something undeniable about you. Right? That's a tough argument to beat. What the world doesn't need is another long list of moral requirements given as though we think they can do it. What they need is for us to say, here's the moral requirement. You can't do it. Praise God for Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs to see from us. The world doesn't need to see people nibbling at the edges of God being good Christian folk. They need to see people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That we say, we want to pull up a seat at the table of God's glory and we want to taste and we want to keep tasting and keep taking in and we want that to shape us to where pretty soon it's really less and less of us and more and more of Him. That's what the world needs to see. The living God, alive and active, and His people. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank You for... Your powerful word. I thank you for the dear Apostle Paul who gives us, frankly, a very inconvenient truth. To be candid, Jesus, I prefer a list. I prefer it quantified. But you make it much more complicated. You seek a greater holiness, a greater righteousness, a greater purity that's even outside of the boundaries of the law that is found in taking in your word and then you coupling life to that word and bringing out the true, as Paul calls it, law of Christ, which is so different. It's just your life written in us. And while we're kind of stopping midway through this whole discussion, and next week we're going to see more of what this means, Jesus, I pray that, if anything, the only thing that would really go on this week is that people would just start praying, making that a prayer. Make this true for me. Make Galatians 2.20, just true to me. It's no longer I who live, but you, Jesus, who lives in me. In this life I now live by flesh, I live by you. Faith in you, Jesus, for you are the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May that be our desperate prayer. Show up big on your behalf, for your name and your glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.